Holy crap. How you doing? Uh, I'm feeling uh, pretty gutted. It's the word, I think, that best describes where I'm at. I feel exhausted. I feel very sad. Um, but sad doesn't quite cover it. I'm like a mix of sad and angry and exhausted, which just I feel like gutted is the word. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, the same. Um, I, I mean, like, it's a bit, it's a bit weird to live in a city where, um, where a mass shooter has entered a mosque and killed people because you go through everything again. And it feels like, you know, we just went through the sentencing for, um, Alexandre Bissonnette. Well, it feels that way because that's what happened. It was very recent. Yeah, and so it's just, it's like, as you say, uh, a, a sadness that is profoundly angry. And, um, mm-hmm. and you know, hopeful, because I think, you know, I think in this episode we can talk about some of the good things that are happening. But by and large, it's, I feel like we're confronting issues that are so massive. Um, and the people who have the power to change things aren't doing anything. And so it's mm-hmm. like... Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Oh geez, I don't, I don't even really know what the best way is to approach this conversation about what's happening. But I, I will say that you know after, you know we're recording this on on Saturday, so now it's been some hours, and I think uh, one of the foremost um, emotions that rise up from the guttedness is extreme frustration. I I just uh, am like yeah. really frustrated, confused about why people who are in power who can do things consistently don't. Like I I I don't know why people don't take this seriously. I don't know why people can't talk about Islamophobia as a phenomenon on its own. I don't know why certain people see this as a political opportunity rather than um, something that they have the power to do something about. I don't know why we're still having meaningless conversations about hearing both sides of an issue. Hmm. I, I... I'm just it's like a it's it feels like a conversation for which I I don't have language for because it's, it's as though the conversation is happening in another language. I feel like I've been saying and watching other people say things in a language that I understand, but it, it's as though we're talking to the wind. Like whoever's listening doesn't understand. And I don't know how to I don't know how to speak that language. Like how do I get to that place where people are understanding how serious this is. Right. I'm just so confused and frustrated. I don't know. Mm. One of the things for me, I think that, um, that helps to ground my anger and frustration is, is seeing how we, 
I feel like, you know, you and I grew up in a in a moment of in, in history where everything was preordained in a lot of ways. Like we were bound by what had happened the generation or two generations before, or we were bound by what happened in our parents' generation. And because of the rapid change in the state uh, with social services falling apart and neoliberalism taking such hold that for a lot of like the struggle that I've been involved with it has been like closed door after closed door after closed door like we like we are we are pounding down that door to try and get small victories and what we're finally seeing now is that that order is really flailing it's in trouble because people know, regardless of the side of the political spectrum that you find yourself, or regardless of the kind of person you might be, everybody knows that the, problem, that the system isn't working. Mm -hmm. Except the solutions that people reach to are not all the same. And the, like, the fact that we live in a country that still conceives itself to be a white country, while at the same time people in power would never say that, is finally kind of bubbling up to the to the fore and you know foreign intervention is coming home to roost like we've created such problems around the world and, and in the west that people are seeking better lives elsewhere because they're leaving war and they're leaving destruction and and our governments have had a direct hand oh, it's like everything is so complex but it all i mean i'm frustrated because it all makes so much sense that yeah. it's like why the fuck is it so hard to connect these dots for the people that actually have power to do something about this? Mm -hmm. I was, um, I, you know, I was on Twitter like most people after hearing the news on Friday. And I noticed there was a journalist from the National Observer who, uh, which is an outlet that you write for, who had reached out to Andrew Shear. Um, demanding in the wake of this massacre um, that he answer for his presence at the Yellow Vests white supremacist um, gathering that happened on Parliament Hill, which, you know, was a necessary intervention. And I, mm -hmm. I, I can't recall if we've mentioned this before on this podcast, but I don't know why every single journalist who covers the federal beat and then some weren't asking him that right when it happened. It's a, like I, I don't understand why they didn't think that that was significant enough uh, at the time that it was happening. I don't know why uh, Maxime Bernier has similarly not been asked to account mm -hmm. for his relationship with Islamophobic, uh, anti-immigrant, white supremacist groups. I don't know why Doug Ford hasn't. And I do know, I can see quite obviously from where I'm sitting, that their tacit approval of these groups helps their organizing helps their recruitment and assists in mainstreaming the sort of ideas where a, where a massacre can be born from. 
and I don't know, I, I you know, I, I tweeted about this experience that I had at the University of Toronto trying to get um, the university administration to care about hateful groups on campus. And it was, it was so bizarre. It was like the same feeling of bizarreness where they were like, well, this isn't, this isn't a real threat. It's online. It's not real. Like you guys, you can't take this seriously. You just have to ignore it and then it'll go away. And I was like, why aren't you seeing what I'm seeing? What? And I, I, I don't know if it's that same sort of orientation that's happening amongst our media and our broader culture where it feels like people aren't seeing what we're seeing. Does that make sense? Yeah, like is like that 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 Facebook experiment that shows that, you know, if you have one set of political beliefs, you see one kind of Facebook versus another kind of Facebook. But even even more zoomed out than that. It's like, you mm-hmm. know, like like journalists who can't understand this is real news. Like this is really important for you to cover. There is a growing uh, really scary movement happening in Canada. And then uh, on one hand, they're like, nah, not important to cover or question while, why Andrew Shear's doing this. And on the other hand, they're like, really important to give Jordan Peterson a voice uh, when it comes to the idea of um, this, that, or the other, pick a hateful topic. You know, like the way that they view these 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 things is that it's either... Like, I, I feel like they think that it's inconsequential or that, like, violence isn't connected to these things. And that's why it's OK to give voice to Jordan Peterson and it's OK to to not question um, the mainstreaming of these ideas. You were while you were talking about the, the lack of accountability that that journalists other than Fatima Syed at the National Observer uh, with Andrew Scheer, I it was, you know, when Trudeau was in Iqaluit apologizing for the TB medical transportations of Inuit, he was slammed, or sorry, the press the press was slammed for asking questions about SNC-Lavalin to him, right? Because, you know, they, they were up there ostensibly to cover the apology and they were asking him questions about SNC-Lavalin. And so the kind of, it makes me wonder like, yeah, why didn't, why didn't they press Lisa Raitt when she was doing all of the media work she did on SNC-Lavalin? Why didn't they press Lisa Raitt in the same way on her party's approval of the Yellow Vest movement? And, and I think that the Yellow Vest movement is a really great example because, you know, from the start, it was very clear that this was a racist movement that, you know, the main pipeline, pro-pipeline groups moved out of the yellow vest stuff with the convoy because it was clear that the racist elements had been had been fully absorbed into the movement and it was their movement like talking about the un compact or whatever was was at the the center of that movement and so if those groups were smart enough to see what was Mm -hmm. happening to not get involved how in the fuck did doug ford jason kenney ford's ministers and ford's mpps and then jace andrew Scheer? all welcome that with open arms right I, I mean and, and the reason why I break it down like that is because I, you know p- part of the things that we suffer from I think on these on these issues is that they're so broad and they're so large that it's like okay but what do you reasonably expect sheer to do and I think it's useful for us to say like I would reasonably expect sheer to say the convoy has uh, at the very least racist elements 
and so I'm not associating myself with that. I would expect Sheer to not respond to a Pizzagate question mm-hmm. and pretend that he didn't hear, mm-hmm. even though it was clear that everyone heard. And instead, if he didn't understand, say, I don't know what you're talking about, instead of answering the question as if it wasn't a complete extreme conspiracy theory. And I expect the conservatives to talk about issues that aren't all about dividing people on economic fear, which is mostly how the refugee and immigration discussion has played out. And and I think that the conservatives think that they get the biggest bump in the polls when they talk about this. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, the, the other uh, thing that comes to mind as you're, as you're raising these like reasonable expectations is that there, there was like, you know, this week or at the end of this week, just a you know few hours ago, um, and uh, a reasonable expectation that the Conservative Party needed to say something about this and to disavow, to disavow the massacre. But that only comes as uh, as a part and parcel of global outrage. The this has happened here. There has been. Um, Islamophobic white supremacist massacre here in Canada, in Quebec City, and there's a reasonable expectation uh, to disavow these groups because they're disgusting and also because this is something that affects us. It's, It's so close to us, quite viscerally. And I mean, I... I think I, I think we did talk about it this either this year or last year. I was nervous at one point that um, the politicians, folks in power, were just going to let January 29th go without ever commemorating it, uh, because it it I I don't think that there was an urgency to uh, from from politicians, and some of the folks who spoke yesterday at Toronto's rally. Um, including, for example, Denzel Minnan Wong, uh, who's the deputy mayor in Toronto. Uh, there was a motion that was served to the Toronto City Council by Nathan Shan to recognize January 29th as a day of remembrance for the massacre that happened in Quebec City, and he walked out so that he didn't have to vote on it. But he was he was speaking at the rally yesterday. Um, I you know I just <laughs> there's just. There's just so much uh, that doesn't, there's so many contradictions. And the way that uh, conservative elements in this society are comfortable either with their hate or strategizing to employ hate for their benefit is so fucking dangerous. And I am more and more terrified that people don't see see it i just how can you not see it (sighs) yeah and ground zero i think right now is alberta uh we've had so many young women specifically ask us to, to to talk about alberta and so this is not the alberta episode i keep saying like it's we will totally do one um we will but I, I think it's critical to identify. So in Alberta, you have Rachel Notley, who is a, a totally imperfect premier 
and is easy to criticize. Um, is the first non-progressive conservative premier in more than 40 years, I think 46 years in that province, and the, and the reforms of that government are significant. But what has marked her premiership has been the unbelievable and unrelenting attacks on her life, on her as a woman, on other cabinet ministers who are women. And it's all from these organized far right Facebook groups where people and then other places as well, where people are able to fall down into a spiral of extreme misogyny to the point where they've got no problem calling for her to be killed or to even say that, you know, I'm either she's lucky that I don't or she better watch out because I'm gonna kind of shit. And Jason Mm -hmm. Kenney is the one to to benefit this from this the hardest. Jason Kenney Mm -hmm. is also the politician who came out very angrily against James Wilt writing in Vice condemning the language around globalism, which is veiled anti-Semitism. And Jason Kenney was like, I'm a fucking friend of the Jews, man. Right. And it was like, what? Mm -hmm. You are you are out to lunch, Jason Kenney. How can you not see the way that your party, which is a party that is likely to win, but there's a lot of internal conflict. It's not a happy merger when with between the the, the further right uh, Wild Rose Party and and the conservatives. And so he's trying to navigate this ship, and the way that he's doing it is to look the other way while the flames of hatred are being completely fanned. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you know, if a mass shooting happened in Alberta, would I blame Jason Kenney for it? I mean, I would blame Jason Kenney for not doing anything to put the lid on the on the on the rhetoric that is continuing to rise and that has led that has directly led to hate crimes, because the Mm -hmm. second you give oxygen to the far right and we see this with Trump, right, we know that Alexandre Bissonnette carried out his attack this is not a guy who released a manifesto it's not a guy who um was as organized as what we understand the shooter in Christchurch to be as organized this is a guy who probably should have been intervened and i'm we can talk about that in a bit and and was was sparked into his action by the muslim ban from trump Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. in the same way, and, and not just Trump, like, in, in, in you know, co- commentators like Ann Coulter and Ben Shapiro and, and fucking Infowars and whatever, and the, and the rebel media who then came to Quebec City and said it was a false flag. Fuck you, Faith Goldie. Fuck you, Ezra Levant, you fucking ditch pig. Like, th- that is the, the, the connection between the rhetoric. And so if Jason Kenney doesn't want to have to answer questions the next time a hate crime happens because guess what there's going to be another hate crime obviously hate crimes are on the rise in this country then then he must before the next election start actually addressing these elements in his party and has to start talking publicly about this and condemning them which i don't know sandy do you think you will no i do not i absolutely don't because i do think for some of these politicians it's not just it's not just using a political situation i think that there are some politicians who are hateful themselves in their views and i think that he might be one of them yeah so no i don't well we know he's one of them yeah exactly um i another thing that's been really frustrating me in the short hours that uh, we've had to digest this is i i've seen some okay so after every, I, I don't 
want to call it like a, a tragedy, but after every um, heinous act like this, after every, you know, fucked up white supremacist terrorist attack, um, there are people who say don't politicize the issue. Hmm who want to talk solely in expressions of condolence, love, light, thought, prayers, the the usual suspects of um, platitudes that are delivered after a political act such as this, and then want to only have it um, and as as if it could possibly be removed from a broader political conversation. Mm-hmm. And it can't. And this society, our culture, has got to do away with the idea that something that is political is bad. The idea that something is political is bad. It is not. There's nothing in your life that's not political. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing in your life that's not political. Least of all, a political attack on a group of people for what their faith is. Least of all. You cannot divorce this from politics. There is absolutely no way that you can talk about this act, the act in Quebec City, without engaging a politic. And if you try, that in itself is a politic. And that politic is to ignore, just like we were critiquing at the top of the program, that politic is to ignore the reality of what's really happening politically below the surface. Not even below the surface. It's fucking right in front of your face. Mm -hmm. You can't talk about these events You cannot talk about Islamophobia without engaging politics. There are politicians, major parties across Europe, North America, South America, like the world over who are engaging in Islamophobic rhetoric and hateful rhetoric in order to get elected. There are people who are engaging in organizing and um, miseducating large swaths of men who are prone to actual violence to create the conditions for this to happen. You can't talk about this without talking about politics. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, this past week, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, um, Catherine McKenna, who's the Minister of the Environment, took a shot at Andrew Scheer's weak statement because he talked about wish- worshippers and not not it being an Islamophobic, an mm-hmm. Islamophobic act. And I thought that that was just such a great example of how fucked we really are. It's like you have someone in government who actually has the mm-hmm. power to combat this who actually has the who actually is in government and has the Mm -hmm. power to 
pass laws and fund things and look at what the research says about where radicalization comes from. I mean, like that has been completely lost in all of this. It's like the reason why people are radicalizing is twofold. One, the internet makes it easier. We all know that. And two, people are increasingly desperate. And for young white men and some young white women, they turn to Nazism, right? Like it's a, it's an impact of the completely Mm -hmm. fucked up economic situation that we have across the Western world. This is what happens when you attack the welfare state. You drive people into isolation. You drive people away from Mm -hmm. public services. You get into a situation where in one case, like I had one guy sending me sending me death threats um, last April and I contacted his mother and she was like, well, you know, there's he's obviously mentally ill. There's nothing we can do. (laughs) It's like, I'm sorry, that's a fucking excuse. But, you know, you can hear the pain in her voice. She doesn't know what the heck she's supposed to do. It's like that's why we have a that's why we have public services. That's Mm -hmm. why we have. We should have uh, youth programs and, mm-hmm. and give young people uh, something to do or skills or a reason to exist because actually existence does really suck. And if we look at all this stuff in isolation, we will never find the solution. Then it's just like, oh, my God, terror is a reality. It will get worse because guns are going to get easier to get and we just have to live with that. And it's like... No, all of these things are fully connected. There are global forces that, as you mentioned, um, make political currency from. But even more important, hatred sells, right? It's like mm-hmm. uh, the far right on the internet is profitable. Memes mm-hmm. are profitable. That's why they're there. That's why they're there. That's why they're there. The far right bots, all this stuff is profitable for, for Twitter because it gives them more users and it gives more eyeballs. And then all of a sudden you can tell your advertisers that there's more accounts, even though if all of those accounts are coming from a, a server farm in Siberia. Like we, this is all this is all logic driven by the profit motive. And it's and it's mm-hmm. it's actually really amazing that in the last three weeks, two weeks, the the, the two global crises that we've had uh the the ethiopian airlines crash where the americans Mm -hmm. didn't see the need to ground their planes instantly and then you ask yourself if that had happened in north carolina what what, obviously they would have been grounding that plane instantly but the connections between northern canada yeah yeah exactly but the connections between boeing between funding trump between the faa between uh, whose lives are mer- worth more and whose lives are worth less, right? The Indonesian airline crash, like I barely remember hearing about it, let alone, mm-hmm. you know, in making in making the headlines for so long. So we've got that. You've got a failure of capitalism. Great. And then and then you've got a mass shooter in 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 New Zealand in a country where he it sounds like he targeted because he knew that they would be completely unprepared for something like this because. It, it's not a country where people have tons of guns or, or where they'd be necessarily expecting violent Islamophobia instead of just rhetorical Islamophobia. As we know, of course, Jordan Peterson was posing with at least one individual who had a Islamophobic T-shirt when he did a talk there a month ago. 
Mm-hmm. And so all these forces are connected and and it we ignore them at our peril and the press ignores them. I'm going to say the press ignores it on like fully on purpose. Not not individual journalists necessarily, but certainly the editorial decisions. It's it's ignored on purpose because at the end of the day, rich white journalists aren't touched by this. The other side of the of the press problem is uh, something I referenced a little bit earlier, the, the idea that we need to hear both sides of this de- of, of a debate, like as though these things are debates, um, you know, whose lives are worthy and who's not. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm sick and tired mm-hmm. of hearing that, you know, there's radicals on both sides. There's right-wing radicals and left-wing radicals and everyone's bad and blah, blah, blah. Like, can we just, can we be honest here? Oh, there are people who are dying because of right-wing white supremacist radicalism. There is no global left-wing movement that is killing people. There's none. Sorry. Like that there it is not equal. It's not. And whatever you folks are learning in J school, perhaps you can help us with this, Nora. Like of, of how you are required to seek out bullshit when you hear a reasoned argument on, say, the fucking climate or our, our collective fucking rights to, to have the freedom to practice our faith in the way that we want to. Like, I, I don't understand how Candace Owen, black, white supremacist supreme, becomes a thing. I don't understand how Jordan Peterson fucking all around piece of shit who deserves to be egged becomes a thing like it it doesn't make any sense to me richard spencer why do i know these people's names why have i seen them on panel after panel on mainstream news why why is that something that's acceptable arguing with people who have real thoughts <laughs> i just it's it's not it's not like a a simple political distinction. What the media is doing is create like I I just I don't know why editorial boards or whoever's you know doing the producing work or whoever's in charge isn't seeing this. I think they are seeing it. I mean, this is what we what what, what I think is invisible to a lot of Canadians about how news is produced, but it's like you know, journalists are not the ones necessarily choosing what's important. Um, I get a lot of feedback from people in CBC offices across Canada. And I want to be very clear, I am not talking about CBC Quebec City because I think people would just assume, like, I have friends. I mean, like, I'm friends with a lot of the folks at CBC Quebec City, so I'm not talking about there. But I, because I, I went to J school, I hear from 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 folks all the time about their frustrations working within the public broadcaster and what gets declared news and what doesn't get declared news. And it is fucking deliberate. And my friends who are not white, who work in the CBC, are constantly shocked at how hostile management is to covering things differently, covering things that matter, covering things from an angle that isn't like the outsider or or exoticized in some way. And part partly it's it's we have a crisis of journalism. Like the best reporting about the 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 shooting in Quebec City came out of 
the local stations because people are local and they're on the ground and it touched them. And, you know, you you heard the emotion. Literally, you heard the emotion. Many of them broke down on air. And it's like. That matters that that someone is covering their community that matters, except if they're not calling the shots about what is being covered then it's going to be completely, the coverage is going to be completely different. And, you know, you can look at the coverage difference between CBC and APTN, right? APTN does some of the best investigative reporting, crime reporting, mm-hmm. city reporting in Canada. <laughs> like, and, and it's, it's, it's remarkable because this mm-hmm. isn't even a public broadcaster versus private broadcaster situation. Like, cause APTN of course is private. It's like they have journalists who are connected to the ground and you'll get local news being better in some cases when people are more connected to the ground. But by and large, again, it's it's white people, but not just white people. It's white people who have tremendous privilege, who are well off, who are making these calls or they're making these calls from far away and they don't actually get what, what is going on in the ground. And, and it, you know, when you were mentioning <laughs> ringing the alarm bell at, at, at U of T, I was thinking about how we launched a task force on racism on campus at Ryerson, which was kind of like the task force on racism that you and I were both involved in across Ontario, but Ryerson had a specific one. And I remember very well a columnist, Marcus G at the Globe and Mail writing a whole column about how it was ridiculous that we were looking for racism at Ryerson doesn't exist. Impossible. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah. And it was like, what was this proof? The school's diverse. (laughs) It was like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. But and that's the mentality, right? It's like Toronto is diverse, Vancouver is diverse, Montreal is diverse. Everything else is like eh, kind of diverse or white, and therefore that's the frame, right? Even though that's completely not Canada. So straight up, like what you're saying is that these these people in power. Um, at, at these media outlets, and we could probably expand this out to the to our political system. It just, you know, it's being run by white folks, so this shit like just doesn't touch them because they're white, powerful folks, and so they're allowed to just like not see it. Is that is that is that is is that what's happening? They're they're not allowed to not see it. No, they they make more money if they don't see it. <laughs> Yeah. They make more money from the organized outrage of the conservative party than they do from I don't know more. Right? They they get more clicks if they know that people will read the articles that'll get shared through Ontario Proud if it's going to be read by more people. And and this is the this is the fatality of the of the of the clickbait driven news industry because all it does is favor already established networks of individuals which just maintains white supremacy right it's like the reality is the most organized people in canada are white conservatives followed by all conservatives (laughs) right not all of them are white um but they're the most organized and so if you play to them you'll you'll get into an echo machine (laughs) where where all of a sudden your your hits go through Mm -hmm. the roof right you write a really compelling piece about about youth suicide or about the meth crisis or about I mean some people will read it and it'll definitely be more important but that's not what matters because all that matters is making is making money or all that matters is making sure in the case of some newspapers in this country 
that power is never really challenged. Because at the end of the day, if we start to say that maybe Galen Weston is literally stealing from all of us mm-hmm. <laughs> through Loblaws, or or maybe the banks, we need to actually seize the banks <laughs> and <laughs> send all of their leadership to, I don't know where, the demilitarized zone between the Koreas. <laughs> like just somewhere (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then people start thinking that that's real no that is way too threatening that's threatening to the system which obviously impacts that directly impacts their bottom line and so that permeates itself down through the mentalities of who gets hired who can stand the bullshit long enough to stay within the corporation and the people that can't stand the bullshit they leave or they stay you know they stay as journalists they stay as reporters or they get involved with their union but at the end of the day they're still not the ones calling the shots yeah, that that feels all very terrible and like a quagmire that I don't know how we get out of. You got hope? Okay, yes. So there's a couple of ways that we can get out of this. Okay, so first of all, I mean, talking about these things outside of isolation, right? As you say, we have to be political about this. And so you, you if you mm-hmm. are listening, you have to resist Every time you see someone be like, oh, it's too soon, or oh, this isn't political, or oh, these forces aren't connected, and and do the research you need to if you're not totally clear, or, or fuck, like, message me and I can help you make those links. These forces are connected. Every single cutback to the public safety net helps to fuel people's falling through the cracks. And when people fall through the cracks, when people are desperate, violence happens. And that violence takes many forms, not just white supremacy to the extreme. Um, and so that's important. But I mean, like, did you see Egg Boy today? A fucking a hero. He's a hero. Yes. <laughs> He's like I, a hero. I saw our teenage hero who, um, you know, continuing along the trend of, you know, should we pu- punch Nazis? He's asking different questions. Should we egg them? The answer <laughs> is absolutely. All the time. <laughs> did you see? Did, did, did you see? Apparently, so um, the 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 uh, politicians henchmen like put him in a headlock and yeah. dropped him to the ground or whatever. Yeah, and they held him there for like fifteen minutes or something like that, which is fucking child abuse. But anyway, I mean, I can't believe that the, that the politician tried to clock him. Like a fucking adult would have been yeah. like, "What? <laughs> Not yeah, <laughs> yeah." Let me fuck yeah. up this it kid. Was like, far more revealing about who he was eh? it was like yeah sorry your 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 first instinct upon seeing that child's face was to fucking hit him in the face piece of shit total piece of shit (laughs) oh but as he was being held in a headlock the police showed up apparently the 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 kid said uh oh here comes the bacon for my eggs and are you serious yeah, and this is this is all reported on Twitter, and the police oh, laughed, right? Because like actually, police are kind of used to be calling pigs. It was his henchman that uh, that tried to retaliate for such an insensitive comment, and the police were like, "Whoa, that's that's actually funny." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, that's that's great. Yeah, so that gives me hope. The other thing that gives me hope was the youth. The youth. The youth will save us. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, okay. Maybe. I actually I hate that because I think a lot of adults do think like expect the youths to save them, and it's like fuck you, man. Do some fucking work. But um, yeah. 
Also, there's Oosterhof to ruin all of those hopes. But anyway, <laughs> let's continue. Yeah, but a fucking 10-year-old could egg Oosterhof. Yeah, several 10-year-olds, hopefully, one day. I was in the climate strike on Friday. Yes. Okay, tell me about that. I mean, I was so... I was so weepy I was so happy at how many people were there how it was you know it was a di- well diverse not really in terms of age because <laughs> they were all really young <laughs> mm-hmm. but it was it was a diverse young group of people who were like very radical in their demands that mm-hmm. like very clearly identified the fact that you know this kind of generational warfare being left with a bunch of shit and told to live and breathe and eat it and I, I mean, it was very weird for that to juxtapose itself with the news coming out of Christchurch and then the feeling mm-hmm. of being in this city. And it was like, how do we even respond? And in, in Quebec City, it's hard actually to respond because you really have to make sure everyone's on the same page. And um, yeah, we were thousands. It was it was like, fuck, good, good. I didn't I didn't see anything on the ground on. Um on Friday for the climate strike, but I did hear an interview that was done with a bunch of youth on, um, on the current, Mm. uh, CBC's The Current, and they were interviewing, uh, teenage activists from the UK, from Arizona, and from BC, and number one, like, okay, people who are interviewing these, uh, youth activists, do not patronize them. Don't speak to them like they're fucking babies because they're not. They actually know what they're talking about. It was really annoying to hear Anna Maria Tremonti kind of like really patronize them. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't you think you should be enjoying your life and, and playing outside or whatever? It was just like, it was kind of annoying. But also the way that these youth um, are so much better <laughs> at the type of organizing that they're doing, then what I've seen in a really long time is 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 quite inspirational and very, very hopeful. Um, one of the things that I know that was talked about on the radio that morning was that Anna Maria Tramonti asked uh, the youth from BC uh, how uh, the climate crisis was affecting her personally, in her personal life. I and also had that question stick in my mind. Go on, yeah. Oh, did you did you watch it also? Yeah. Or or listen to it. Sorry, watch it and listen to it. So she she responded by talking about how it wasn't impacting her directly in the same way that it was impacting other communities more directly. And she had an understanding that uh, people who have different identities, who are from other places in the world, um, are more at risk for the or more at an immediate urgent risk for a climate catastrophe than she was where she is and Anna Maria Tremonti responded by saying something like ah so this is you're you're more concerned about people who are overseas that's really lovely and she responded to Anna Maria Tremonti and said and in other places in Canada and I was just like wow you know (laughs) it would be so lovely you know if we could count on our national broadcaster to have that that type of um, analysis going into a discussion about the climate uh, with with folks who are doing a climate strike. But I am so glad that the youth who are organizing these things 
uh, really know their shit and, and what they're really organizing for and how it impacts people differently. I'm also really, um, you know, I, I was thinking recently too about uh, the, the, the youth that um, demonstrated in Ontario against the ending of the sex ed sexual education curriculum. Um, the Ford government was forced to roll back on their announcement that they wanted to scrap it and have recently announced that they will not be removing anything from that sex ed curriculum. Those kids won that fight too. And so I'm just like, you know, there is, there is uh, quite a bit of hope from um, the way that youth are organizing and the youth who are organizing understand um, that there is it is uneven the way that we're all being attacked. And uh, that gives me uh, quite a bit of hope because it's far more analysis than uh, seems to have reached uh, mainstream media and uh, the general uh, cultural population that is above uh, the age of these youth. So shout out to Rebecca Hamilton from Vancouver who said that. It was Rebecca Hamilton. Shout out to you, Rebecca Hamilton. Yes. And she's fucking 16. 16. And <laughs> the national broadcaster was just like, here, actually, I know more than you. <laughs> just like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Y'all have done so many interviews. The current, how would you, why wouldn't you know that? Like, why would you term it that way? It's so bizarre. It's such a, such a Canadianism, though, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is. And and I think that like the the sad part of existing in this moment is that uh the breakthrough victories are going to be vastly overshadowed by how difficult the challenges are. I think that the climate mm -hmm. change I think climate change and climate change denial and then denial of 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 how to fix climate change because that's kind of the new denial right it's like oh sure it's for sure happening but we don't know how to fix it or we can't fix it or whatever there's a direct corollary mm -hmm. with with global white supremacy which is the same thing oh my god it's so big we can't fix it this is so difficult they're finding themselves on 4chan we can't shut down 4chan whatever and it's like you know there are simple there are simple acts we've talked about a lot of them but i think a lot about what um i heard uh in court when alexandre Bissonnette was being sentenced that he had guns and he was not a stable person and he was never a hunter like he never had the guns for a purpose that wasn't that was like you know sport like a hunting mm -hmm. and i'm i will never know i'm sure and canadians will never know why his parents never had his gun seized so while everything seems like really hard and there's no real like easy answers like keep in mind that there are always answers that can mitigate some of these issues there is always an answer if there's no mm -hmm. answers then there's no hope because then then we're just like we live in a society where someone's just gonna lose it and kill themselves right we can end youth suicide we can end mm -hmm. violence against women we can end road accidents we can end plane accidents clearly and we can end mm -hmm. violent white supremacy and sometimes the way we end it is profound and difficult and complex, but sometimes it's as simple as asking where the fuck was that guy's community to just say, you know what, let's make sure he has no guns. 
And, you know, if you're listening to this and you have someone in your life who you're worried about and who has, like, weapons, it's like, maybe start there. Yeah. Start close. (laughs) 